Welcome back to Consilience Conversations number two, and we find ourselves back with our fellow co-hosts here, Dr. Matthew Roos. Dr. Matthew Roos, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be here uh, once again. It's great to have you, and it, it's funny, in the pre-show, we were talking about what it is that we're going to talk about, and what's so interesting about this, and you know, I watch other podcasts, like the Dave Rubin podcast and the Joe Rogan podcast, and it's funny because I, I, I know that they always have a plan or an outline for what it is they're going to talk about, but since they follow their interest, sometimes they end up going fairly astray, and I feel like that's actually part of the strength of this medium, as opposed to, say, like a traditional lecture course. Like we, we of course do have a focus and we do want to get out certain information and we do want to cross literature and neuroscience here, but whoever knows which direction it will go. Um, you know, there's another, uh, I just thought of something to, well, let's be honest with ourselves. It also makes our lives a little bit, or our jobs a little bit easier here. Uh, we don't have to do as much prep work, although that, that could ultimately be a negative, but, uh, you know, maybe I'm using what are one of the, uh, sort of, uh, Cognitive failures were just ah. motivated reasoning to uh, explain why we are using this format rather than a more outlined or structured format. But a, so far, I'm, a, I'm an advocate. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And it's funny, it's interesting, after talking about the confirmation bias uh, last week and how that's sort of the opposite of how a scientist is, is supposed to think, whereas the scientist is supposed to perhaps see a, see a pattern and then do everything that he can in order to disprove that the pattern is real, mm -hmm. it, it seems like we as normal humans, and especially me, will sort of look for a pattern and then look only for additional evidence of that pattern. And so I was catching myself doing that, and I, I do that quite a bit, it looks like. Um, so I think we all do, and a lot of times, and you know, that, that's part of being human. Uh, and some matters are not that important, so we don't need to spend a lot of time uh, creating many alternative hypotheses and testing against our own hypotheses. Uh, right. It's and a very so, effective shortcut many times. Yeah, no, and I agree. And it's like we would not have it, – it seems like we would not have evolved that capacity if it weren't most of the time helpful, though at sometimes unhelpful. Correct. Yeah, agreed. And I guess we're just so sophisticated now as creatures, and society is just so sophisticated that we cannot get – we just cannot get away with that shortcut at all times and all moments at this point. Mm -hmm. Right, um, right. But it's funny, so just to dovetail a little, so what we wanted to talk about this time, expanding on our initial discussion on confirmation bias were, were some of the errors of thought. And so you had me read a small selection from this work called Clue by Gary Marcus, but then more recently we both started reading a work by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanioff, um, which they were recently on Jordan Peterson about suggesting that every K through 12 administrator and teacher should have a copy of this book. And in this book, they also have a list of sort of cognitive biases or failures of thought that we wanted to talk about some today. Um, emotional reasoning, catastrophizing, overgeneralizing, dichotomous thinking, mind reading, labeling, negative filtering, discounting, positive blaming. But to actually dovetail in the way that I, that I was thinking about, um, they do have a discussion of trauma early on in the first right. chapter as well. And I, I would like to mention that very quickly because um, something you were asking me about <laughs> earlier in the pre-show was you were saying, well, how is it that you are going to uh, join the image of Medusa, the Gorgon, the, the serpent-headed woman who turns people to stone to this conversation? And well, well, are <laughs> you ready to hear what I have to say on that? I'm ready. Okay, so <laughs> let, let, me, let me drop it down. Dragon imagery, exists throughout all literature and all cultures. You can find not only serpents in the Old Testament in, with Adam and Eve, but you find a very similar, but you find a dragon also in Revelation. You find images in the saints of the Catholics, St. George versus the dragon, St. Patrick, of course, expelling snakes from um, Ireland. You have also in contemporary British literature, like the Lord of the Rings, so, um, the uh, smog, the dragon that uh, the Hobbit has to defeat, as well as in Harry Potter, of course, there's a, basilis a basilisk, the king of snakes that Harry Potter has to kill. Uh, not only that, but even in ancient literature, in the Iliad, you have images of snakes causing fear, uh, but not only fear, but petrification. And for instance, in book three um, of the Iliad, Paris, who is uh, the brother of Hector, who essentially caused the Trojan War by stealing Helen, he's described as running out in front of the Trojan ranks and looking every bit a hero. But when he sees Menelaus, the man whom he stole Helen from, he, like a man who has just almost stepped on a snake, turns whitish green and recoils in horror. And I thought that was, that was wonderful. But where I take the, the main image of Medusa from is the story of 
of uh, Perseus. Um, Perseus was a son of Danaea and a son of Zeus, and he was famous for receiving from Athena a mirror shield for which he could use against Medusa to see her gaze through the mirror, through reflection rather than actuality, which is very similar to how each person who does not die by the basilisk's gaze in Harry Potter 2 does not die. They see a reflected image. And so sort of the idea in literature behind that is that before experiencing a traumatic event in reality, you can inoculate yourself against it, like how we physically inoculate ourselves against, say, polio by, inject by injecting a small amount of it so that our immune systems, which are very robust and anti-fragile, become stronger. Well, the idea seems to be the same with our minds. When you, when you show evil or you show the petrifying force of nature to humans, young humans especially, through the medium of literature or art, you help to inoculate them from the petrifying force of nature. And so how I wanted to connect that to the coddling of the American mind is that some data that Hyde has dredged up, which is really incredible to me, is that when people are traumatized, most people do overcome trauma. And Part of how they overcome trauma is through exposure therapy, which means through representations of that which they were, which caused the trauma in the first place, they, they gain the competency necessary to deal with those experiences. And so I see the Medusa image as Medusa is that experience which traumatizes you or purely petrifies you that you cannot handle. And the only way that you come to be able to handle it is through art through a reflective shield or through literature, something that represents the experience to you in a less volatile or violent way so that you can start to, uh, so that you can start to accommodate to that situation, these Piagetian terms. And, and I'm, I'm really hoping that you've got, you've got some brain science for me on this, some neuroscience, because I, I do think it's almost as if what you start to do is construct the situation in your mind without the, the horrifying stimulus being immediately present, which would shock you. And so that, that's my initial bit on Medusa. Um, and so, well, what do you think about that? Was there anything well, interesting there? Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, analogy for sure. Um, uh, and there's, uh, it made me think of two things, uh, yeah. just your commentary generally. Um, one, which we probably don't need to go into here, is really just what is even the definition of trauma. Right. Um, and so we have probably, as a society, generally agreed upon older definitions that were pretty solid. And that, you know, the most, uh, the strongest example of that is soldiers that uh, suffer from PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, they see, they experience a trauma that is the trauma of war and uh, some of the activities that go on there. Um, but trauma has come, and this is, you know, croaching into another topic area that I know you're interested in called concept creep. Yes. How that sort of definition or label of trauma has, uh, been in recent years really expanded, not really in recent years, just, you know, through the course of, of decades. Um, although it's, uh, someone claimed taking on really new, uh, excessive, uh, broadening of its definition day. Uh, but leave that aside for a minute. The other thing I, I'm thinking about here is your description of Medusa and the, you know, when you say you, perhaps through the reflection, uh, you're getting a sort of small piece of, of that trauma in a way, and that sort of can harden you towards it. So we have to be, we could take the analogy a little bit too far, too far incorrectly in the sense that uh, typically trauma is, you know, something that occurs. And then now you're traumatized to it, and so it, 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 it puts you in a, a great state of fear or anxiety if you uh, experience this again or have some, some uh, experience, some stimuli that reminds you of that a traumatizing event. But you know, the, behavioral, the cognitive behavioral therapy uh, that uh, Haydn Lukanoff uh, discussed is you know, then that's this exposure to small pieces of that to ultimately uh, sort of habituate you to the to that stimulus and remove uh, ultimately that that fear response or that anxiety response uh, when you're exposed to that those sort of triggers or um, those associated stimuli. Uh, now, in your Medusa example, uh, it's more you know you're seeing uh, 
a little piece of the Medusa and that's hardening to you or and you of course related it to uh, um, taking a, a vaccine for example and so that's something that you you do you take you do beforehand in order to prevent this sort of trauma from occurring although that's you know, you know perhaps not the right right term for trauma there but all in all I think it's a you know it's an interesting interpretation of course my understanding from the mythology is you can't ever see you're never really going to be inoculated against the medusa right you if you see the medusa it's done you're done uh, right. so so maybe the analogy uh, uh, fails just a little bit there but I, I, I do like where you're uh, where you're going with it well I don't, I don't know if it does because the thing is you do see Perseus does see her but sees her through reflection sees her through the medium and so Something we do at, say, the high school class is like one of the works that we teach is Heart of Darkness, which is, a, you know, and another one is uh, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. These are war stories. And so I guess part of the question might be, why do we, why do we teach war stories to these young mm -hmm. humans, these young people? Well, mm -hmm. part of the idea is that war is part of life. And we don't want them simply to have a historical understanding of what happens in war, but we, we want them to have an understanding of what humans are like. So that when they run into difficult situations, and potentially if they become soldiers, and potentially if they find themselves in terrible situations doing terrible things as soldiers for whatever reason, they might have more of a chance of not being traumatized because with their minds as anti-fragile systems, having to some extent experienced at a much more diluted or watered down level what's happening, that mm -hmm. uh, that they might not suffer the initial trauma in the same way that somebody who was more naive would. Um, and so that's how I'm sort of seeing the, the Medusa, not, a, not necessarily that she's just seen in part, but that she's seen in, as a reflection uh, or, or through a different medium or like say through a veil rather than in all her horror all at once. It's mm -hmm. almost as if what she represents is the inner is nature, part of which is your inner nature as a human, which if you're a soldier, say in Vietnam, perhaps you did something at some point that you could not comprehend with your then vision of reality and who you were within it. You know, perhaps you killed somebody during the course of battle. Perhaps you you mistreated somebody, and I'm not trying to impugn any sort of troops, but it is the fact that people often who get traumatized are traumatized not simply by that which they see, but that which they do as well. And so I, I'm, I'm sort of suggesting the idea that having a more robust idea of human nature through greater experience through art and literature can make you actually safer in the world if you consider being traumatized um, um, a danger in the world. Um, and, and perhaps, uh, you know, I Perhaps that exposure to these ideas, the literature, uh, the art, as you suggested, um, just prepares, as you said, you might divide this into sort of, we don't just study history as if it's a bunch of facts. Right. Uh, we, I mean, we often do, but we want to have a deeper understanding. We want uh, to educate people to have a deeper understanding of the, the social implications, the, you know, the, how lives are actually impacted by this and the emotions. Uh, uh, and so perhaps, um, you know, that education through that literature art may also give people the uh, a sense of what will happen if we get into these situations or take on wars or battles. Right. Um, what are the costs there that be, go beyond just a, a number of casualties, but sort of the, the long-term impacts on, on people's lives. Right, right. And something, so, and I do want to talk about concept creep and how trauma has been redefined from something that, that happens, which is physical, right? It used mm -hmm. to just be blunt force trauma. Um, to your head, to something that became psychological in the DSM, to the diagnosis, the the main psychological manual, the diagnostic and statistics, the diagnostics and statistics manual that the uh, psychologists use for their diagnostic criteria. Um, I do want to talk about how it's gone from a physical definition to a psychological definition to a much mm -hmm. more watered down psychological condition, um, mm -hmm. and then tie that to the idea that students are fragile systems who need safe spaces who are incapable of dealing with that, which could potentially produce trauma in them. But, mm -hmm. um, so, well, I guess the thrust of what I'm trying to ask, um, there are a couple, is this. In exposing a student 
to a terrible aspect of life through literature, possibly even something fantastic, like say, for instance, Dante's Inferno, obviously that's not a physical place and it's sort of a fantastic environment. And so there's sort of a layer of, of, of artistic safety between you and the terrifying experience. But I wanted to sort of connect that to, um, to um, rats <laughs> and how a rat would uh, react to say a threat or to a mm -hmm. cat. It, um, something Jordan Peterson talks about in his lectures in Ma Maps of Meaning is that if you waft the smell of a cat over a rat who's in a cage which it has explored and made known territory, it will skirt along the walls and then like make a little rat sound indicating threat. And then it will slowly do these corner runs in order to redefine known territory because the smell of the cat and the immediate presence of the threat in front of it sort of traumatizes it to a small extent and then it has to rebuild its known territory it has to rebuild its world and so maybe that uh yeah. sorry i'll just interrupt quickly and yeah. and so i don't know that I, I i'm aware of those types of studies exactly those type of rats and uh you know uh some sort of uh anxiety or fear inducing stimulus in this case for cat urine or cat fur but um, it's also possible that that animal that is the rat is uh, creating a new territory. Uh, you know, the, the rats have glands that put out um, uh, chemicals that the other rats uh, can detect as well. So not only is that a response that maybe um, the rat is informing itself or learning for itself a new space, but that information will be picked up by other rats. So this could be sort of a, a I don't want to say a swarm behavior, but uh, that could be a beneficial behavior to the other animals in a normal, in a, in a ecological uh, situation, natural ecological situation. Well, that, that's excellent because that, what I want to uh, make an analogy to is a human's known territory. Mm. So what trauma seems to be is a human going outside known territory into the unknown and then being unable to adapt their map, unable to integrate the new experience into the known territory and thus expand their map. So I wondered to what extent trauma, and I guess we can tighten up the definition and talk about concept creep as soon as we want to, is a result of a human encountering an unknown piece of information, which they are incapable of incorporating into their map of reality. It is a failure of a human to change the unknown into known territory. And I guess what's, what's underlying that statement is, I think I, I'm, what I'm suggesting is that what a human's territory is, um, and we even speak this way when we talk about area of expertise or you know, this is my field of study, is that our, our territory is not simply physical, but also psychological. That we also, because we learn and we don't just act behaviorally, we also have to some extent some small consciousness that works on our experience and memories, that we actually have a a map, a territory within our minds um, that helps us to behave in our situations and that uh, in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And that what trauma is, is sort of in a disruption of that map with uh, and that, that keeps you from updating it in such a way as you can move forward past the petrification process. It's as if what trauma does is leaves us in the moment when the, cat, when the rat smells the cat and freezes. And it's like, okay, what do we need to do? Well, what does the rat do? Well, the rat starts doing corner runs in order to re reconstruct its territory. Well, what does a human have to do? Well, it seems like we have to start, you know, exposing ourselves to the territory we once thought was safe, was known territory, which has now become unknown territory because of this new stimulus or anomaly, and which we now need to remap. Um, I was wondering what you would think about that. Well, let me add uh, a little bit uh, to these these definitions, or perhaps modify them, and or we can just discuss that. But um, so a key thing that I think you sort of left out, but which um, doesn't mean your definition was incorrect. I just I would narrow it down a little bit. Is that you know it's the um, you know you you said uh, sort of maybe you experience or encounter some information and that information may, may be an event that is of course uh, a physical real you know realization of information um, and you are unable to sort of incorporate that into your schema or your map or your uh, um, so the um, of course we experience that all the time in the sense that 
come across things that have no real emotion, uh, emotional uh, valence to them. They don't really affect us emotionally. And so, oh, I don't understand this, or it does, it's sort of, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, I can't place it into my experience. Oh, well, you just go on your day, <laughs> you know, just uh, keep, on, keep on going. But of course, these are ones, these are, trauma is, uh, at least especially in the uh, more classical definition, is something that is highly emotional, uh, impactful, and often uh, something that is uh, related to emotions of fear and anxiety. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm not a clinician. I don't really truly know a lot about this topic, but I think in general, uh, it'd be something that uh, is so sort of emotionally devastating and that individual does not have the uh, sort of the tools, the, the you know, the, the cognitive, I shouldn't even say the cognitive tools, the neural tools, to deal with that, particularly if they are re-exposed to some element, some trigger that reminds me of that, of that, of that uh, situation. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, I, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but um, you know, I, I was thinking about this a little bit in terms of um, uh, animals and fight or flight, and I think you know this may be going a little bit afield uh, from where we are to take this conversation, but. Uh, you know, the, uh, the fight or flight reflex, um, serves a purpose. It's that, you know, in evolution, an animal, when, uh, observes something that is, uh, dangerous to that animal, it needs to take an action and it can't sit there and think <laughs> it, it, it can't take a long time to process the situation and come up with a variety of alternatives. It just it needs to do one of these two things, uh, you know. Well, really, three things: fight or flight or freeze. And to listeners who may not be so aware, sometimes freezing is the right thing to do because the sort of attacking animal or whatever the danger is may just go away, um, especially if they don't even notice that animal, the the, the prey anymore. Um, and so that involves a cascade of processes, but really the fight or the flight fight or flight um, involves uh, nervous system changes, basically some of them physical or many of them very physical so that the animal, uh, you know, the, the heart rate might go up, the blood vessels expand. It's essentially ready for physical activity. Um, now, uh, this is maybe a tenuous connection, but with trauma, um, you, you don't have a fight. You, you experience sort of these same things. And so, um, you know, these, these hormonal changes occur rapidly um, and they are sort of tied to this, uh, whatever the, the, the event itself was. And somehow that bonds that, um, bonds that event to your, your fear system or your anxiety system. So that's what's really, um, you're, you're now you're hyper, uh, hypersensitive to uh, triggers there. Could you, could you talk a little bit more about those systems of fear and anxiety in us? I know you wanted, you, you mentioned the limbic system a little bit last time, and, and you actually mentioned that even reptiles, I made a joke about them, you know, have fairly sophisticated brains, and quite a bit of our brain, you called it the ancient brain, we, we still share with the lower animals mm -hmm. uh, and their fight and flight. So, so would you be able to just tell us uh, and the listeners a little bit about the limbic system and what you mean when you, you mean when you say bonding the experience to the fear systems so that the fear systems might be more sensitive to a similar stimulus in the future? Well, I can only take it so far, but I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I, what I know. Um, you know, as I mentioned, there, there are a lot of things that we don't understand. So, um, so if you see something that uh, is perceived as danger, of course, there's a whole question of how do you even perceive that that is danger, right? right. And some things may be, in some sense, innate uh, in our, our system. Actually, you mentioned how this reminds me that you mentioned dragons as, or serpents as being a theme. Um, and there is sort of evidence uh, that, you know, there's an innate fear of uh, uh, snakes in people. You know, that doesn't mean every person is... Uh, fears them with severe dread, but it's something that's almost uh, ingrained in us. Um, so there may be a little bit of that, but how is it? So, you know, the amygdala is one of the most, uh, is really an area that is highly responsible for, um, it's, I'll say that part of the brain is very active when we are experiencing fear or anxiety or danger. 
And it's not clear how that comes about, right? It's like almost like it's bypassed, the, the sensory input is bypassing uh, or, or almost the information is somehow being processed by the amygdala itself, almost in a way separate from our cognitive, you know, our high level uh, cognitive processes. That's in a way that makes sense because those ancient animals in the ancient brain didn't have the, the, the depth of cortex or the extent of cortex that we have. That is the, the newer brain, our thinking brain. Um, so somehow it did it. And so does ours. Uh, now we have, uh, you know, there's a slightly slower response by our sort of newer uh, brains, the, the cortex, and that can sort of compensate or, or make alternative choice, alternate choices versus fight or flight. Uh, it can, you know, we can get ourselves to pause for a minute and assess the situation. I'm talking particularly about things that are uh, not truly dangerous to us. Uh, they may stoke sort of fear or anxiety, but just thinking about when you're in the workplace and you might have to give some uh, presentation or you're under the gun uh, by your boss or some customer for something. And so clearly you're not going to take a physical fight or flight reaction there. Um, but nonetheless, those systems can be activated. And, you know, that's essentially uh, stress, right? That's, that's the sort of um, activation of that system that can uh, some people uh, through their jobs experience that stress day in and day out. And it's actually physical, de physically detrimental to them. Well, that, that makes me want to ask you just a very quick question, which maybe this will open an avenue that we'll have many episodes we can talk about. But that all, this, the fact that you're suggesting that patterns might be represented on the visual, like the visual cortex, and then move down to the the amygdala and bypass the prefrontal cortex, the decision making engine, mm -hmm. and then be directly perceived by the amygdala, mm -hmm. makes me think that what it perceives is the meaning of a situation or the emotional valence of a situation, rather than. Uh, scientifically understanding the physical component parts of it in the same way that say our prefrontal cortex. Right. Uh, it, it, it's sort of a, I'll just interrupt quickly. I think it's, it, it's a sort of an interesting or challenging conundrum as a you know, neuroscientist to, to resolve these. That is, um, you know, how can you know, let's, let's just go to the simple predator and prey animal situation and that animal, you know, the prey animal sees the predator animal and it's a, you know, some sort of cat, you know, mountain cat. And uh, not, it, it has to, I, I think you're right. What you said is completely right. What that, that area of the brain is doing is uh, processing and, and distilling the actual level of danger um, from that situation. But how can it do that unless it also knows the, the, the orientation of that animal, like that, its body relative to that of the, the prey, um, where that gaze of that prey animal is. Right, uh, right. So, and, and we think of that as a lot, you know, a lot of that is accomplished in the uh, earlier sort of low areas of the cortex, low, you know, primary visual cortex. But, you know, we often think of situations where you really need a lot more information. You really have to have a lot of information to know whether um, there's really a danger or not. I guess our personal human experience would be more like crossing the street and you turn and see a vehicle coming, you know, coming at you headlong, um, you had to sort of recognize the whole situation and the orientation and, re and relative position of everything to know that you're in danger. So there is certainly some level of, of processing going on, but it just, um, maybe that there, it may be that we've, um, some of those are so used, uh, that it is every day we are walking around in the environment, um, experiencing, um, moving vehicles for ourselves or moving objects. And so that becomes such a low level, like a lot of that uh, processing needed to recognize those relationships ends up really not being in the prefrontal cortex. It's that very low level cort cortical areas. Um, and that's enough information for the amygdala to then operate on and assess where there's a danger there. So that's right. And well, that, yeah, sorry. That's really interesting because we'll just several things all at once. I would make the claim then that mythology, the language it speaks, is the language of the amygdala. That why mythology seems to not square with science, which, which I would take, or empirical science, which I would take to be the language of the, you know, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the consciousness that arises from that and, you know, several other subcomponents. Like we don't know about consciousness as much as we'd like to yet, but, you know, we're getting there. Um, but that what mythology represents are 
marquee situations of extreme motivational valence or extreme emotion. Moments when like say a predator is in front of you and whether that predator is a dragon or a giant man who is going to kill you or a situation where you are about to lose your wife or something like that. It, it, what mythology seems, uh, seeks to explore are those moments when you experience fight or flight, those marquee emotional moments, not, not simply the fight or flight ones, but I think it speaks the language uh, of the lower brain. And that's why the images are often so interesting. And so just to put that claim to a side for a moment, what you said about the amygdala's processing and the fact that it sort of has an unsophisticated version of predator, that we then use the prefrontal cortex and our thinking to sort of clear up and clean up, makes me, while I look at these cognitive biases, especially labeling, um, overgeneralizing, mm -hmm. and, and, um, and the confirmation bias, and, and what Jonathan Hayden and Lukianoff talk about with a post hoc reasoning, makes me think that often what we do is experience an emotion and then we try and label it with our mind. We don't think through it necessarily so much as, oh, I must feel this way, this emotional reasoning slash labeling. I feel this way now, therefore the person in front of me, like I feel scared, therefore the person in front of me is a threat. Therefore I categorize them as predator. And my reasoning for why they are a predator is they made me feel scared. Um, and yeah, I think it's a combination of uh, what uh, you know they call or others call emotional reasoning, as you just mentioned, tied and this is it sounds like to me what you just described, uh, coupled with the uh, 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 motivational reasoning. So right. um, they're somehow motivated, and part of the motivation might just be to quickly explain this emotion that I'm feeling, and without giving it um, much more thought than that, you know, I must feel this way, so that something must be wrong. And, and we're done. And then, you know, then the fingers start pointing. Well, that's, that. incre that's incredible because it makes me understand now why we go to watch scary movies, right? Because part of the reason seems to be that we want that limbic system arousal without actual real threat. So we need to be, we need to be sucked into the movie enough. And this is probably why we go to amusement parks too. We want to be in an actually safe situation in which we feel threatened so that we can get that physiological arousal which I, I suppose makes us feel good to some sure, extent. You, yeah, sure. For, especially for some people, they actually, you know, we all get this sort of uh, adrenaline or there are multiple hormones that are released into the bloodstream and it gives us this sort of like, uh, you'd call it a bit of a, a slight artificial high, although it's not artificial. It might be artificially driven by the amusement park that you're at, uh, but it's, you know, it's naturally generated uh, by your body. And uh, some people seem to like that. Others, uh, they might not dislike that, but they may be more overwhelmed by the negative uh, emotional aspect of the, even though the danger is not real, the uh, sort of sim simulated danger. Right, so with mythology to tie that back, what I think that must be is a first pass approximation at us trying to, to explain situations in, through stories which cause that sort of arousal because we exist in a society which is too sophisticated to simply rely on our basic ancient brain reactions. Like you were saying, if all we ever did was be afraid of fast moving big things like bears, well then cars, we could not deal with them. We have right. to acclimate to them to some extent. And right. if we just have one bad interaction with someone who yells at us and we put them in the predator category and they're our boss or our teacher or our spouse for that matter, that's not going to work. We have to be far more sophisticated than that. So part of what I'm starting to understand is that some of these biases come about because we have this ancient machinery and we're constantly put in these situations where the ancient machinery is active. Like, I mean, just think about somebody cutting you off in your car. You're scared all of a sudden, your adrenaline's pumping. Uh, you feel threatened as well. You say all sorts of nasty stuff about that person immediately. But then like say you get to, you've, you've just been going for a spot, but you happen to be colleagues at the same school. You have to very quickly clean up that situation with your mind and, uh, and sort of, and, and establish a more sophisticated understanding of the situation than your ancient brain would immediately suggest to you, which is like, this is a threat or this is a competitor and you need to fight against this person. Where, whereas it's like, well, 
this is my colleague. I have to spend the next 150 days teaching alongside them. Uh, and like there's a 10 year long career maybe I want or 50 year long career. And I need to actually. Or even, or even there, uh, nobody you've ever met before, but that right. doesn't mean that they're, you have one negative experience with that person. That doesn't mean they're the worst person in the world. Uh, you know, things happen, you know, oftentimes inadvertently. And so our emotion, our initial reaction may be very emotional to be either angry or scared. Uh, but ultimately we need to, when we can take the time to, uh, uh, consider the alternatives that this person is a person and they may have been, you know, inattentive in their driving or something, but not, uh, which, which could be angering, but, uh, there's no real harm intended there. Right. Right. And, I mean, it just strikes me that what mythology attempts to represent then is the experience of a situation like that uh, couched within a narrative so that you know how to appropriately behave in such a situation. So for example, I teach the Iliad and one of the first interactions that we observe is uh, between sort of an alpha male, Achilleus, who's the top warrior who's sacked 23 cities. And I think I brought this up last time and the king of the army, Agamemnon. So the one guy has all the power in terms of political power. Agamemnon. He, he commands a hundred out of a thousand ships. Everybody listens to him. Nestor, the wisest man, says he's the boss. And so he's the boss. But Achilleus has all this physical strength. And so what we run into in this mythological tale is, well, then how do you settle this dispute? Do you settle it through the usual way from the generation before, like what Hercules, Heracles would do, which is fight it out? Or have we now reached a situation in culture where now we're massing in a more sophisticated way. Um, this is a story that talks about the setting of the nation of the ancient Greeks, where now this sort of dominance ritual through physical prowess is not going to make the group as strong as a more politicized uh, version of conflict. And so right. how are you going to act? Because your ancient brain is going to say, fight and kill this man. And actually what happens with Achilles is he's about to pull out his sword and kill Agamemnon, but a goddess pulls him by the back of his head, the goddess of wisdom, which suggests to me, in the, if, if we're correct, that this language of mythology is the language of the limbic system, that what's being suggested there is a thought occurs to him. Like, maybe this is not the best thing to do, even though my emotions are all telling me 100% kill this man who has slighted me right now. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I, I like the, uh, I like that, the, um, you know, as you mentioned there, and I'm not aware if this is a, a generalized statement that could be made, but sort of the, the, the history of mythology, that is, um, that is the progression of the stories as they, as they came to be in the world, in the real world, uh, the, those stories were told. And it sounds like those stories evolved in a way that similar to our society has evolved. Yes. Um, and, and, Actually, I've been wanting to say this for, for uh, the past few minutes. Uh, it, I was reminded, actually, I stumbled across this, uh, this quote, um, uh, actually just earlier today, um, but it, it's by one of the neuroscientists. I believe you uh, know of him, but he's uh, Antonio Damasio. He's a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Diego. But uh, the quote is, we are not thinking machines that feel, we are feeling machines that think. Yes. Um, and so that really sums up Almost all like that's that's you know for um, you know our emotions really are are central in in our decision making and that's just something that a lot of people don't don't realize uh, and that's I think sort of what this whole series that you're interested in is is talking about but it also can relate to um, the mythology and you know where in this arc of people moving from machines that purely feel to machines that purely think. And of course we are not machines that purely think, but where in the arc of that, that um, where in that arc do some of these characters or stories in mythology lie? Is that's perhaps that's actually, yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's great stuff, Matt. I, I think that's, that's very good. And uh, well, that makes me want to ask you this question uh, in a work prior to to um, the coddling of the American mind with Lukianoff, Hype wrote a book. Um, I, I always forget the title of it. It's why good people are. It's, it's about politics. It's his most and religion, yeah. And religion, right? It's a psychology of religion and politics book. Mm -hmm. And it's like why good people uh, get into fights or something like that. I, I mm -hmm. suppose I could look it up 
really quickly. No, I think it's something. Yeah, you're you're close. I think it's something like why good. Uh, the righteous why? mind. Why good people are divided by politics and religion. Right, right. So he makes a claim there that I think is very much anti-enlightenment claim, though I think probably correct in terms of empirical science. He says that the conscious mind is like a rider on an elephant, which would be the sort of ancient brain that you've talked about before. So mm -hmm. most of the time, the elephant, which is much stronger and bigger, is in charge, but the rider can sort of slightly guide and contextualize things for the elephant. And so I, I wondered, I, I want your input on whether you think that that's a fair or good analogy for sort of the difference between the limbic system or the ancient brain systems and the, the prefrontal cortex or the conscious mind. Um, not to make those I, the same, obviously they're not. But. Yeah, I don't think it's bad. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't have a strong, a strong, a strong feeling about it. Um, I, I think it's somewhat apt to say that uh, you know the you have this um, older brain, and maybe that's the elephant in this case that is taking care of the bulk of the the work um, physically in that part, but also you know call it a, you know even if it's a horse or something you know uh, an animal that someone might use for transportation kind of knows where it's going or what to do most of the time. You know, you don't, you only need to steer it around a little bit. Um, on the other hand, again, on this sort of arc between thinking machines that feel and feeling machines that think, you know, um, we'd like to think that we're really in charge of that elephant. Um, and in some ways we are, right? We, we, as you, and I think this is what you meant or what you were saying, that the context, like the world around you, you, you're the one that's taking all this other information and, and making, um, greater plans like planning ahead figuring out why you might want to go to location a versus location b and directing that animal on the other hand uh once in a while that animal is going to get away from you a little bit and so do our, our our ancient mind right and well it's just interesting because it strikes me that certain certain cognitive tricks we learn to do and certain distortions like labeling we use in order to produce a certain reaction in our elephant to maintain our group biases. So if I, for example, am a, like say, super left Democrat and I mm -hmm. hate everything associated with uh, conservatives and so, well, what do I want to do in order to A, maintain my known territory and not learn anything anomalous and B, maintain my feeling? Well, how about I label every conservative slash Republican as uh, either as predator, um, as potential Trump, right? Um, it's interesting because I'm, I'm, it's almost like this is enlightening me about the news cycle and also how political discourse sort of devolves out of control or fails to ha uh, enact shared information between sides, right? Because if yeah. I already want, if I'm motivated already to be right in order to maintain my, my in-group status with say other liberals, then I don't want to be agreeing with other conservatives. And also I'm motivated to perceive them as a threat to myself for multiple reasons. A, because if they have information that's anomalous to me, they might change my self-conception and thus my group affiliation and thus my level of safety, so I perceive it. But also- right. perceived as, let me add to that, uh, perceived in the sense that now you may be uh, ostracized or looked right. down upon from your own group that you already uh, feel like you're a strong member of. Right, exactly. So I'm actually motivated not to learn about these people and to demonize them in order to maintain my known territory and my group status. And that's mm -hmm. and that is exactly what you would expect from this information, right? <laughs> so and let's remind people that this is, uh, and that doesn't mean that people are cognitive, you know, conscious that they are doing right. this. That's sort of why they are doing this. It just, and it's it's sort of a bit of a hypothesis that that's why they are doing that. Sure. Although the these, you know, the psychologists that study these things should demonstrate that these. These are behavioral realities. Um, now, what you know, is, what really is the the sort of neuroscience or cognition underneath it is always much more complicated. But it's it's certainly exposed by behavioral experiments. Well, that's, I mean, that's incredible because even just looking down this list, like discounting positives. If say I'm conservative and I or or say like I'm like you know super right nationalist. Republican, like the most right I can possibly be, then I'm never going to want to see anything positive than the left does, that the left does. And if I'm super progressive left, then I'm never going to want to see anything positive about the right, which right. 
What, well, what, I, I would just caution you to use the word when using the word want in these statements. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, under, I think you and I and, and listeners generally understand what you mean by that, but it's not a conscious decision. You know, most people think of wanting something as a conscious right. uh, oh, uh, awareness, but that's not the case here. Well, so it's even more pernicious, right? That I'm not simply motivated to perceive the situation in that way without being conscious of the fact that this is happening. That's simply how I see the situation, mm -hmm. right? Right. And, and you mentioned, you know, uh, I think maybe overgeneralizing and, uh, uh, but like negative filtering is another one that they use, which is, you know, you really only, you're, you're sort of just filtering out anything positive about the message from somebody else and, and just uh, taking in the negative and then catastrophizing it into the, you know, a space where you just don't want to you think you think nothing of the positives there so right and well, how are you ever going to shift your thought or you don't necessarily have to you know just because you have that position doesn't mean your position is wrong right you're not, uh, 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 being a critical thinker about the other uh, person or group's uh, position well then you're never actually you may make the error of having uh, uh, perhaps an unjustifiable position yourself Right, and I, I see two problems with that because just because you are not members of one in-group or not, not shared members of one in-group does not mean that you are not members of another broader or more inclusive group. Like say, if we're say Republicans or I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat, we're both still Americans. We're mm -hmm. both still scholars and we're both still teachers and uh, we both speak English and we, you know, we have so many different things that or so many different groups that we share um, membership in that simply focusing on the differences in one group is inappropriate. It's, it is not the only, we do not simply exist in one group each that are, uh, that are op opposite, that are opposed to each other. And mm -hmm. also what that seems to be a problem about is if you are in a group different from mine, which means you have different perspectives and different, different um, sorts of information for me, like, as you do as a neuroscientist, um, then you, then you are an extraordinary source of information for me. You're like a golden goose. If I actually listen to you, if I'm motivated to listen to you in order to acquire new information to inform my perspective, then you are precisely the person I want to hear from rather than the person who I should just or, or naturally sure. define as you know, echo chamber problem. Um, if you just isolate yourself with people that have the same thoughts that you do. Right. And that's, that's sort of showing me what the difference between like, say a human and an animal is like, like you were saying with, with say like a lower animal, like a dog or a rat or a cat that um, has this amygdala response of fight, flight, or run. Um, well, well, it has to fight, flight, or run. Like, mm -hmm. or, excuse me, fight, flight, or freeze. Um, but with with me, if I encounter you and you have, say, a different political opinion from me, and boom, you're all of a sudden a threat because you're in a different in-group, and I freeze, well, then I do have access to my conscious mind, right? I can't reframe the situation where we are two interlocutors within, you know, a shared state and have shared beliefs and values, at least based on say like the yeah, constitution, if we even had to go that far back. Um, and that you are potentially someone who will make me safer and more robust and more secure within my territory by informing me of that which I do not know. Um, it, it, this, this, uh, uh, this reminds me of, uh, this is a little bit um, of a tangent, but it reminds me of, this is a, re a recent article, uh, scientific article that came out uh, just earlier this month or maybe a month or so ago. And it was one in which um, these, these scientists, and I guess these were really uh, social scientists, they, um, they built sort of like a, you know, a media, a social media platform, and they had people go on there and discuss some contentious, uh, uh, political topic, right? And they had people, they had two, several different scenarios or several different uh, separate experiments. And in one case, the, the, the participants, uh, you know, they only see their, just like going to any chat room or any social media platform generally, and you see comments by other people um, and you see posting of news articles. Uh, I think they, what they did was they actually put uh, just one news article and then, um, or set up of uh, sort of empirical evidence and then they let people chat. In one condition, they had 
uh, sort of like a donkey or a, a, a elephant attached to each person's name, right? So the participants knew the affiliations of the uh, other members. And then there was a, and then the other extreme was a chat room where they did that and there was no affiliation, no identifier, no cue. So they wouldn't know uh, what someone's uh, declared political affiliation was. And what they found is that un, perhaps unsurprisingly, you know, really unsurprisingly, I would say, but uh, when asked a question about inferring or understanding what the, the data meant, uh, the consensus was much stronger uh, when they didn't have these uh, cues as to what party the other inform, you know, the other uh, uh, participants were in. And in the first case where they were labeled as such, uh, you know, they, they really just could not come to a consensus that, you know, those that were the Democrats really in interpreted the data much differently than those that were the Republicans. So, uh, you know, there are multiple aspects there, but um, this sort of motivated reasoning is one of them and labeling, which is sort of what uh, got us in this study, in, in this conversation, the, uh, the labeling of these individuals as being in one group or another. Uh, so I thought it was a really interesting study, perhaps something we could uh, dig into a little bit uh, some other time. But um, Yeah, I'd really love to because I, it, it's as if what that does is focuses the conscious mind on labeling and labeling this person as other and labeling other as threat and thus uh, po post hoc developing reasoning or developing one's thoughts in order to defeat or to enter into conflict. With this other person uh, because the moment that they are labeled as donkey and you are elephant um then right. you People are already don't. at odds you are they're already, already at odds yeah they right. they are just have they they exhibit many of these uh uh what he calls these cognitive distortions um yeah. and it prevents them from coming from forming a uh sort of social learning and coming to a consensus well, you know, what's so fa fascinating about that is, you know, these conversations, I know that we're laying down a lot of mythology and science here, but this is, this strikes me as exactly the sort of conversation that we need to be having as a people, because our current solution seems to be, seems to be that we just shouldn't label anything. And yet we still do, because of course we have to, and that all labels are relative. And that seems like a very unsophisticated and not not neurologically or neuroscientifically supported or or literally or mythologically supported way to do anything. Um, uh, well, we have language and we need terms for things in order to have a discussion. So things, you know, there's a sort of a difference between a label and a sure. definition or, um, you know, it, it becomes perhaps hazy at some point, what, what's what. And usually, but usually the term lab, label often has a negative connotation in the sense that it it bends everything together and then it, then it allows um, you to think of everything within that label as a homogenous set. And they are not right. homogenous set, they're diverse set. Um, you know, and, and that can be tied to, once again, this can go back to concept creep where yes. you know, we talked about trauma already and trauma used to have this, uh, you know, a certain definition and that definition expanded and sometimes that expansion is good. It, it, it recognizes, for example, you mentioned the sort of physical trauma um, and then we went into psychological trauma and there are various forms of psychological trauma, but then it can expand so much that something that uh, most of us would just take to be a, a bad day <laughs> sort right. of experience and somehow define that as trauma. And, and so, you know, it gets to be murky if you allow that definition or that label to expand so much that you don't have a nuanced language to, um, to tease these things apart. Well, and that's precisely the problem. And I think you, you nail, hit the nail on the head and maybe we can close with your thoughts on this, but it seems as if that concept creep is tied to this, I, tied to this movement that we've had where we've been becoming more naive and less sophisticated about that which we know. Even though we have been producing more and more empirical data and we are the most sophisticated that we have ever been in terms of methodology and access to facts and distribution of facts through technology. I mean, the fact that we're even speaking right now and that we can, we can be doing something like this, I think is testament to that. It seems mm -hmm. like what we need to be doing is taking account of this very good science we've done and becoming more sophisticated in our thinking, understanding that there is an elephant, an ancient brain in us, understanding how it motivates us to think in a certain way, understanding these distortions, observing, you know, in a clinical way, observing our own behaviors, our own thoughts, our own actions towards others, and then identifying these behaviors and these, these distortions within ourselves in order to actually be genuine and uh, good towards those 
in our lives, our, in our actual in-groups. It's, it's as if our solution has been to get hazier and to get sloppier and to let our concepts creep uh, and to claim that we can't know anything, while on the other end, we're actually learning more than we've ever learned before in existence sure, and we need sure. to be a little more sophisticated in how we talk about what it is that we know. Yeah, I think about my only and my response to that would be, um, you know, certainly the more we know about ourselves, as is not not we as a society, but like as more an individual knows about their their thought processes, the better they are going to be able to become a critical thinker and put emotions aside or understand some of these uh, biases or distortions that that may come about and find ways to counter that. Uh, we have these. Uh, we all have this. Another factor, though, or another thing to think about um, is how, and this is more of how do we as a society, how do we build platforms? Uh, how do we host discussions? Um, how do we, you know, how does our political system work in terms of, you know, the, the, the debates, the interactions? How do we do this in such a way that we don't, we're not um, um, uh basically bad actors can't easily come in and pervert things. Um, and I don't mean necessarily, you know, a foreign entity coming in and taking over our, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to spread false news around. I just mean even ourselves, like even our own um, sort of internal country or state or city. And how do we, uh, knowing what we know about the sort of the psychology and the neuroscience of these, these cognitive uh, sort of errors, how can we, as a society, construct ways to counter those and ways that counter them, even though some people may not be aware that they themselves have these these biases inside, you know, in their thinking. Well, perhaps perhaps what we're doing here is constructing something of a shield of Perseus, so that others can reflect not only on Medusa but on themselves and their own thoughts, and perhaps we can model that behavior here. I guess that is what we're doing, right? Um, we are, you know, coming across disciplines across the country to speak and uh because we we share an understanding that is so important to 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 meld this data into the public consciousness and to help share and distribute it because it's it's real it's good and it's helpful um i love how you pulled it back to i got the, the shield of Perseus in there that was a great uh <laughs> You really brought it back, and I like it. Thank you. You know, I got to add something here. You're the real scientist here, so I've got to be able to make some analogies every now and then, ask some good questions. That was um, a good one. Well, I think we're we're just about at an hour right now, Matt. Um, would you um, – and so just to let the listeners know, we're reading through this new book um, by Jonathan Hyde and Greg Lukianoff, um, The Coddling of the American Mind, and that's already had me buy a couple new books. Um including Anti-Fragile by Nassim Tlaib. But a question I want to ask you about next time, and we, you know, we can, we can set up what we want to talk about next time, would definitely be to be, or definitely be to ask, is a human slash is a human brain an anti-fragile system? And I don't want to get into that too much now. But um, Sounds great. Looking yeah. forward to that conversation. Yeah, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Matt, just for the listeners to know, uh, Dr. Matt Roos just had a birthday yesterday, so happy birthday to him. And may thanks, time. Alex. And thanks yeah. to any listeners that want to wish me well as well. <laughs> yeah. And um, just to let the listeners know, we did have a couple questions by one Daniel Babcock. And he asked the one question we asked him not to ask, which was about free will. But that's fine. Um, we, will, we will get to your questions uh, eventually. I think, Babcock, uh, if you're listening, and I'll be sending this to you, so I hope you do, um, uh, we will uh, post your questions onto either this podcast or the next podcast. And then we can, we can do our best with them. And if any other listeners ever want to call in, um, I, I really appreciate questions. And I'm sure you do too, Matt. And, um, you know, questions, questions make the conversation. And so good questions, you know, are very, very helpful. And I, no question really is too stupid. Um, Agreed. Yeah. Well, again, I appreciate your time, uh, Matt. And, well, uh, I'm going to be thinking a lot about my thinking over the next couple weeks. And uh, just so the listeners know, we've decided on doing this every two weeks so that we have time to prepare this sort of a preparation heavy podcast. We, we kind of have to have our stuff together for it. Um, but, um, but look forward to another one of these in two weeks. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Good morning from Detroit, gentlemen. Two of my very good friends speaking on interesting topics. Um, 
I was curious about something Dr. Ruse, Mr. Ruse in this scenario, says that um, if what we think of as noise is really programmed uh, uh, on the subconscious level in a neural network, that this implies potentially that we have no free will. Um, now, of course, you weren't making that claim. You were suggesting it as a possibility. Uh, my question is that, uh, so then the implication would be that free will must only exist on a conscious level and that it's potentially a mirage of the conscious level um, projected onto the conscious mind from the subconscious mind. Uh, so I, I really actually made me curious about ideas of free will on a subconscious level. Is there any potentiality for that? And so this would obviously be a question for really both of you. Um, and I have a second question or a comment, but I'll make another message. Okay, second question. Um, immediately after the claim from my previous question about noise in the system, uh, Mr. Ruse made the claim that he's not a philosopher, and so he couldn't answer a question. Um, and I would like to, to ask or challenge and talk about the relationship between science and philosophy and how the two fields need to be bridged in order for us as a species to, to really move forward. Um, so, yeah, if you guys could talk on that, like what is the relationship between each, what is the role in each, what, what job does each have. Um, but regardless, I'm uh, really enjoying what I'm hearing, and uh, I'd love to join you guys one day. So uh, keep it up, and uh, I'll talk to you guys soon.